Matthew's chapter 1. Tonight, I invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. It's not going to make sense as much if you don't have the Bible in front of you, so I hope you have it in front of you. All right, let's, uh, let's read this text uh, from start to finish, and then we'll pray, and then start thinking about the major theme in it, and develop it out here for us tonight. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the stream flows, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What what has been will always be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I am the preacher, excuse me, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know the wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind." For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this text that we'll be confronted with the realities that we live with in a fresh way. I pray, Father, that we would not anchor ourselves into things that, that are fleeting, but I pray that our hearts would be anchored to You and that our hope would be only in You, and that You'd be able to uh, lift our souls out of the mundane cycles that we live with and point others around us to the hope that lies within You. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this text in a little more detail that we would be encouraged to do so. In Your name we pray. Amen. So, it was a couple of years ago, at least eight years ago that there was a successful bid for the presidency that was based on hope, okay? There was even a book title called The Audacity of Hope, right? This should be fairly familiar to us. Um, During that time period, the country kind of rallied around that thought of hope. 
Now, of course, with all politics and all politicians, it's unfounded hope if we hope, or hope within a person. But it was very successful. Why was it successful? Because people want something to sink their hopes into. They really want something that they can long for and touch and feel and be encouraged by. And it so is somewhere out here, and it kind of keeps us motivated. Well, 2016, there was another campaign based on hope. Make America great again, right? We have the hope that if we get our guy in, then there will be a greater America than what it is now. So we're kind of in this, this, we're in this continuum, it seems, that we're continually looking for a hope that lists, that's, you know, encourages us, us to look beyond where we are now. And so it's uh, really important that we have our hope set in the right thing. Just, a, just another historical illustration of this idea, um, back right leading into World War II in Britain, uh, Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of England at the time, and uh, he was communicating with his people about um, steering the course of, of, um, of um, appeasement of Germany. And we can keep out of this war. And there were a lot of slogans during his campaign. There was a fact, there was a big banner that was across the, the Times River that said, Trust in Chamberlain. And so the, the whole country was rallying around this hope that maybe if we vote Chamberlain, men, Chamberlain in, we won't go to war. And there was this naggy little guy in the background on the back bench named Winston Churchill who was saying, no, 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 you got your hope in the wrong place. And who was right in the end? Churchill was right, and the nation put their hopes in something that was in, in the end uh, going to ruin them. And it is often our, our tendency to have disillusionment on the offset of putting our hopes in something that will not deliver. Um, Thinking about this theme of putting our hope in something that does not deliver, what are some common things, and I'm opening this up here, what are some things that people put their hope in that is misplaced? Okay. Money. Happy life. Education. Okay, what else? Their own strength. Their own strength. Okay. Yep. That's a dwindling resource, our own, our own strength. Uh, my father, for just throwing out an illustration here, my father is at a point where he is trying to manage several building projects He's been trying to do some of it on his own. He's getting to an age now where he can't fully do it on his own anymore. And his, so that dwindling strength is very, very real for him. And it will be one day real for me as well. Anything else that we, pardon me? Job or an occupation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Even money itself, you know, like the security and stability of the United States government, we might be putting a confidence in something that may not be forever. What, what others? Anything else? Retirement funds. They may go like up in a vapor, right? That's, that's, that's very possible. I hope that's not the case for you, Bonnie. <laughs> I'm glad we're laughing. But Ecclesiastes 1 
verses 1 through 3, I'm just kind of breaking this into sections. Verses 2 through 11 could be considered a whole poem about purposelessness that this world seems to generate. And uh, at the very beginning, he introduces himself in verse 1 um, as being the preacher, the, you know, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. So, it's actually um, likely, very likely, this is Solomon, although Solomon doesn't state it so clearly. He's kind of, you know, in the background shadows here. Uh, but I tell you, it's hard for Solomon to hide because it seems like this is the guy who's here for the hour to explain uh, what is going on. And he's lecturing us on the big questions of life. And so in verses 2 to 3, we have a, a, a looming question in all of this. What is the point of life? What is the point of life? Verse 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. <laughs> he says it five times. What, what, that's, that's not like what you want to sink your life into. That sounds very distorted, um, almost purposeless. And uh, the word vanity is something that's going to come up in the book an additional 29 times. So it, it, it focuses in on the theme here. Um, but the word vanity, and we saw a little bit of this in a clip that we watched last week, but the word va- vanity comes from a word that, that has, carries the idea of a vapor or a mist. And I think it's actually helpful for us to realize that the author of James talked about this, didn't he? What did he say? Your life is but a vapor. It is here for a short time, and then it disappears. And I believe that James is thinking back to texts like this and drawing that out for us as New Testament believers. There's another key word that comes up quite frequently in this text, and thinking of of the word vanity, but there's another word, and that is the word, a phrase, really, it's under the sun. And it's used nearly 30 times, almost as frequently as the word vanity is used. And it's intentional. It's kind of to set up a parameter and to set up a conversation that everything that we experience is what Solomon's going to be talking about. He's going to be talking about what is the point to this life under the sun. The sun rays affect everything in this universe that we experience. And so he's talking about what is really the confines of our own life that lives underneath of the sun. We are all underneath of it, and we are confined by the sun. And so he's asking in this, uh, this text and in this book those questions. But what does it profit, verse 3? What does a man gain by all the toil by which he toils under the sun? And so, the word gain there is sometimes translated profit, like in monetary means. What is the profit? What is the the gain that comes out of this life? And it's a a hard question. I think Jesus said it this way in Mark 8, 36. He said, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and then lose his soul? And so, Solomon is setting up the the boundaries and that our life is in a contained place. So, let's look at some of these cycles of containment that that he he, uh, presents for us. Verses 4 through 11, 
There are different cycles that are described here. And uh, verse 4, he says, A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. As we look at the, you know, if you've been to the a cemetery, obviously some of us, we've, we've, there's the cemetery aspect of looking at gravestones, and you see generation after generation after generation. I remember being at a, at a service um, up in uh, Cawkin Cemetery, um, maybe it was about a year ago, and I observed that there was gravestones from every major war there represented. Every generation is got containment upon them. And so, there is cycles here within generations. One generation goes, and then another generation comes, but the earth itself remains forever. I want to ask a question here. What are some… So, what, what, what Solomon is doing is he's talking about monotony. What are some life cycles or cycles of monotony that you face in your daily life? Going to work. How so? Okay. All right. Okay. How, what are some mom cycles that just never stop? Dishes. Dishes. Okay. Laundry. Okay. All right. Okay. Dads, do you have… All right. The moms still want to keep going here. <laughs> Paying the bills. Do they come every month? All right. Okay. And then some. What about students that are here in the room? What cycles do you live with as a student? Homework? Did I hear that? I don't know. Like, college is weird because everything's just jumbled. There's not much. There's one cycle. There's some of that. But there is some cycles, too. You have to get up and you have to go to school. You go on the bus every day. You come home on the bus every day. You, you, you go, you know, and then you do it again the next day, right? <laughs> it's true. Okay. Employment? So what, what, what are some cycles in employment that we experience? All right, I'll give an example. Well, with, within, within the framework of your day, do you prepare a meal every day for students? Okay. So, so while, the, while the... Right. But while the menu might change each day, you're still doing the same thing, right? Over and over. Okay. All right. Okay. When I worked in the factory, my job as a factory worker in the automotive industry was a 52-second cycle where I repeated the same cycle every 52 seconds. So, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Blocks. We would take an engine block and we'd have to break it down and put it in the block washer. And I'd have to use hydraulic equipment to take it off the skid and put it onto a jig and open up the crank uh, cover and then take the crank from another uh, pallet and put it into the same jig and then it sent it off into the block washer. Had to do that in 52 seconds. And it was continual for two hours. And then you got a break. <laughs> but then you got another two hours, you know? So there's, there's repetitive natures. Even in farming, the cows get up. The cows beg for mel- to be milked twice a day. You just can't get out of it. And so 
Solomon here is talking about this, the struggle that we, we deal with. The earth is so repetitive. There's so much repet- repetition. And um, like uh, in verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. And uh, he's describing some of these cycles of life that we experience. The circular motion there in verse 5 is, is observed. In verse 6, he's talking about the wind currents and, and the jet stream motion is consistent and it just never seems to change. Like there's this continual wind pattern that, that goes on. And, you know, we have a snowstorm and then guess what? We have another one. And then we have another one. I was talking to Paul Williamson a while ago, and he said there was, some, there was one month here at the Tabernacle where they canceled Sunday service for a whole month. Now, I don't, that, that must have happened, but you can get into those secular patterns. And so it just seems, and then the river itself, verse 7, all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. And then the place where the streams flow, they, they flow again. So he's talking about like the, 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 the water cycles. He's looking around, but the rivers, the, the, the sea is not full, but yet the river keeps emptying into the sea. Like, it just doesn't make sense. What is the purpose in all of this? And so it's kind of like he's looking at all this, and it's like, this is the song that never ends. It just goes on and on and on, my friends. And this is the idea of what he's, he's saying here. And so the climax here comes somewhat midstream in this, this flow of verses. And in verse 8, he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. It's mind-boggling. It's beyond words, he says. It's doing a lot, and we, we just never, we never get anywhere. And so, um, it's really important, I think, and this really He's using all these observations to ask this question. Don't we all hunger for closure? We're set within these continual cycles that we live with. But don't we hunger to have something complete? Right? What's this? You do? Okay. But this is the idea of what he's saying. We, we live with all these cycles, but we, we long for completion. We long for finality. We long for something greater than the experiences that we, we have. I think of um, a few years ago um, in New Brunswick, Canada, in the Bay of Fundy, there were two men who perished in an in a, um, accident on a lobster boat, and they were connected with the church that my father was a part of. And they searched and searched, and searched, and they could not find the bodies. And you think about that. We, we, we want closure. We want um, completion. There are some things that we have to experience in life where we won't get that in this lifetime, but the hunger is there because God is greater than these continuums that we experience. So Solomon is talking about this to to draw our attention towards God. In verse 9, um, he goes on with another concept. He says, what has been will always be, and what has been done will always be done. There's nothing new under the sun. He's saying, look, 
history tends to even repeat itself. You know, just thinking about the different presidential personalities that we experience here in America. Uh, President Trump is very much like Teddy Roosevelt, very avant-garde type of personality. That's nothing new. It's just that we haven't experienced it. Others' generations have experienced that. There have been corrupt presidents in the past. Rutherford Hayes was corrupt. Garfield, we have had corruption in our memories. And that we think that somehow our life experiences is somewhat unique. But we have, we've ex- all of each generation has experienced, experienced these things. And in verse 10, he says, is there a thing of which it can be said this is new? It has already in the ages before been done. And so, yeah, we have new conceptual ideas, right? I mean, we have something in our hand, and I have something in my hand here. It's a technology, but what does it do? It just helps me speak to someone. It hasn't really created anything new. I actually can talk to Drew face-to-face, or I can talk to him through this. But the, the technology has changed, but the whole reason for the technology hasn't changed. I still can communicate directly with people. Sure, it's helped. Sure, it's made things a little bit easier, and actually it could be argued that it's made things more complex and harder. But the, the idea hasn't changed. You know, um, we can think of like nuclear power. Nuclear power is uh, just power. It's a different form of power. And it, when it becomes a weapon, it's just a different kind of weapon to kill people. And so throughout all of the ages, there is really nothing new. It's just variations on the same themes. And this is what Solomon is telling us here. And in verse 11, he turns a little bit more pessimistic because he says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who have come after. The journey goes on, and, and, and while we work hard to make a name for ourselves in this generation that we live in, there's a generation coming who will have no idea who we were. Let's face it. Many of us can't think of our great-great-grandfather's names. Do you remember their names? Now, that's a very pessimistic uh, conclusion to this, this poem. And so, in verse... 13 to 14, he continues on here after this, this grand introduction of purposelessness. In verse 12 to 14, he talks about that there are conclusions that we can gain from this, this closed cycle world that we live in. And so, he does that. Um, he says, first off, in verses 13 to 14, he talks about how that it's an exhausting and weary pursuit to try to get outside of the containments that we experience. Um, he says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I mean, we, 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 we do work on this planet, but we're like, we don't have a, an end conclusion to all of it. It can be exhausting. 
can be absolutely exhausting and wearisome as we, we work through the accumulation of knowledge in our lifetime to really, in the end, it's actually, and then we die. But in verse 15, Solomon makes a great observation that I think is really important for us to realize. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's observing that there are limits. We cannot fix and straighten things that are crooked, that God has already made to be crooked. We can't fix them. Um, if the money's not there, you can't count it. You might like to have $50,000 in your bank account, but if it's not there, it's not there. And he's saying it's really important for us to understand this. Let's put it into our life perspective. Let's say I want to be a football player. Look at me. Do I look like a football player? Look, it's like I'm crooked. I can't be made straight. I can't be made tall enough to be an NBA basketball player. It's not going to work. I could get really frustrated with these limitations, or I could remember the one who has given me these limitations. You think about it. I mean, we live in a generation that, and we do live in a world of great and intense opportunities here in America. But let's not get crazy. You know, we have been given great opportunities, but there are people in this world that if we were to tell them, hey, you can be anything you want to be, they might live in outer Mongolia, live in a yurt, and they will never be the president of the United States. There's limitations that they live with that are all around them. And I know that we, we, we talk big to our children about, oh, you can be anything that you want to be. Just be careful with that. It might destroy them in the end when they realize that they can't really be anything that they want to be if God doesn't allow it. Well, the reality is we're living in a broken-down house. We live in a world that's, that's crooked. There's, there's things that are lacking that can't be that can't be corrected even. So Solomon's also recognizing here that the sin, sin condition that we have in this world is warped things as well. And so it's important for us to understand that there will be frustrations in this life. But in spite of all this, the, the, the message of hope is still strong because, yeah, he's telling us what we already know, and thank you, Solomon, but there should be a hunger that is evident within all of this, that, that we have been placed on this earth in a position where we live with the vanity, the, the, the hopelessness that's in this world, but yet there's something in us that hopes for something else. Where does this come from? Let's turn into the New Testament to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a tremendous text that really points our focus away from these frustrations in life to where hope really is. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a tremendous hope and focus. This is where it's at. And when we get our heads down into this, this lower level of the frustrations of cycles and just going through the busyness of life, we lose the, lose the joy. We lose the joy of expectation of the hope that's coming for us. And so Paul is saying, look, you've, we've been placed in this position of vanity along with the rest of creation. So there's this natural expectation in all of us. There is this desire for something better. And we as Christians have got the answer. We've got the answer. We've been saved by a hope that's founded in Christ. A hope in God and a hope for a future glorification. This house is starting to break down. I have turned 40. And it's starting to break down. I know where the end is. I know where the end is. But the truth is, the end is not really here. It's eternal. It's eternal. There is a new heaven. There is a new earth coming. And we have been redeemed to live on that new heaven and new earth without the frustrations of the cycles of containment that we live with here. And so he's saying here, I reckon, I reckon that there is these difficulties that I live with, but I also reckon <laughs> that there is a hope for which we long for, and it will come to us. Now, we, we have lots of disappointments in life. On Friday, I had a few disappointments in my life. And in the grand scheme of things, they're not as difficult as other people experience, but they're frustrations of containment. I went and saw my tax accountant. Okay? But, but in the end, it's not about that. In the end, we have a future vision of glory. And when we get our hope off of that, then we get frustrated. We have to keep looking to the God who never dies, who is eternal. And you know what? We have great opportunity. Christians, we got the answer. We live with cycles and people get so frustrated about where they are in work and, and everything. We have an opportunity to look up. We have a greater hope. And as people see this and they ask us, like, seriously, how do you get through week to week? Why, you know, why are you just, like, I'm just living for the weekend. I just can't get away from this cycle. We have the opportunity to share with them Christ, who's promised us release from the cycles that we live with. So we need to also thank God for these moments of frustration because they give us an opportunity to reflect again on Him. And that is a reason to live.